The Fujicast is an independent loading zone production. I'm not sure, Kev, I should mention what's going on at your gaff today. You've got a computer that doesn't work. You're arguing with uh, the utilities people. I thought I thought you were all settled in at, uh, at Mullins HQ, but, but uh, there's a few teething problems. Yeah, well, um, yes. Utilities people, they can... They're all... Oh, my God, it makes my brain explode. It's not a difficult thing. You know, the new fella is paying for for the new the old line i'm paying for the new line it's the same supplier right. <laughs> it's uh, you know honestly you ring them you can't get through to them when you do get through to them you speak to somebody and and i just have visions of him sat at home watching teletubbies not making any notes about microphone call whatsoever why is this and, strange chap watching the teletubbies oh it's you know, they're all weird. working at home aren't they and they don't give a damn <laughs> tell, tell them who you are so, i am darth mullins <laughs> Yeah, and then my monitor's just gone pop just no. like 10 minutes ago. Yeah. So I'm looking at you. Well, I'm not looking at you because we don't look at each other, but I'm, I'm looking at the uh, the Facebook questions through a, a, a veil of red vertical lines. Oh, you can still just about see something then. Yeah, yeah. Do you know who I feel really sorry for in all this? Who? And, I, and, and, and you're gonna, I know you're going to tut at me, but uh, because he's become, you know, our Jack's friend as well, I'm because Albie has the monitor that they all talk about. My, my Jack says, do you think you could get me a monitor like, like Albie has? Uh, not? <laughs> but he's just, poor Albie, he's going to have the monitor whipped from underneath him and replaced with just a regular run-of-the-mill monitor. Yeah, he is. He, well, he's got two monitors. He has got my old really nice BenQ yeah. 4K monitor. Yeah. But I am going to have to take that off. Oh, no. Oh. It's going to be the proverbial taking sweets off a child. <laughs> he's not going to He's not, not going to be happy later on. The Fuji cast. <laughs> oh. Well, I, look, I hope it gets sorted. It's not It's not nice having teething problems, is it, at the new no. office? The utilities people. They want to be... I'm, uh, but BT started off really, really well for you because you, you had a banana or a cup of tea with that bloke or some, something like that, didn't you? Or? It's not BT. He was just the open reach guy. He was nice enough. Yeah, yeah but it's, it's the work. supplier. Yeah. Like, stop charging me millions of pounds for things I'm not paying for. Don't you know there's a war on? Right, welcome to the Fujicast. Are you your questions from our electronic mailbag and, of course, through the Fujicast private Facebook group? Uh, Kev is looking after those questions and I'm looking after the ones that you send through to click at fujicast.co.uk and the, uh, the Patreon ones. Although that's due to perhaps change in a couple of weeks' time. We'll talk about that in a moment. If you're not a Fujifilm shooter, do not worry. Big community, whatever flavour you shoot, you're very welcome here. Thank you to our friends who are supporting us through Patreon. Kev's Book of the Week this week is... Well, uh, I'm actually going I'm going on topic, and I've got 1960s photographed by David Hearn. Oh, yes, because that's our guest as well. Mm. What a week. Yeah, yeah. When, when Real you, privilege for me to you, speak to him. When you pop that message up, a lot of people were like, What? David Hearn? How'd you get that? But mind you, you have a bit of an opening, don't you? Through the through the college or through um... uh, no 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 so um, actually it was Daniel Meadows who I interviewed a few weeks ago who who, who did the legwork on that for me ah. which was kind of him ah. but um, yeah I mean the the story with the college is that Newport Art College where David Hearn Martin Parr Daniel Meadows they were all there yeah. Paul Rogers <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, and I used did, to drive yeah. past it on a bus every day and I used to think it was a mosque what yeah <laughs> I think <laughs> I've heard you say that before it does it yeah. obviously looks very mosque looking. Yeah, it's got a dome and, and everything. But yeah, it, it, it's, uh, it turned out to be the, the best yeah. photojournalism college in the whole world. I know. 
Yeah, isn't that, isn't that odd? And at, at that time when you were driving past it, you'd have had no inclination really to have wanted to go in there and do it. But then yeah. fast forward a, a decade or, or two, here you are. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, photography wasn't a thing in my school at all. You know, it was just not, it was never something that was offered ever. No, no we didn't do it either. Um, yeah. It was yeah. never, I, I, we didn't have dark rooms or anything like that. Yeah. I think most schools have something to do with photography these, these days, don't they? I'm sure they do. I think they probably do more now because it's, you know, visual arts is a, is a you know, in the creative industry is far more uh, lucrative and seen prof- as a professional business, I yeah. think. But yeah. back in the day, back in those days, I mean, in my, when I was in school in the 80s, it was, uh, you know, oh, you've got to learn about computers. That's the future. And, uh, you know, maths and physics. And I did my physics GCSE four times. I was rubbish at physics. I, I, if it had an ology, I know that wasn't an ology. That was an X. <laughs> Physicsology, but, but it was all in that department. That that place gave me the creeps every time I went near the door of that that particular block. Do you remember when you were in primary school? Did you ever go on a day trip to to your high school? I did. Yeah, scared me yeah. witless in the last year. Yeah, they did that to us. We they dragged us down to St Joseph's, which was the high school, yeah. and we were all there. You know, you know, eleven year olds. You, you know, kind of short short trousers and quivering knees, and they took us into the biology room. Yeah. And it stank, absolutely stank. And we all went in and we're like, whoa, what's that? Yeah. And uh, and then they cut open a rat in front of us. And no. that was even before we went to school there. You are, I mean, I, that, I remember the rat thing as being that thing that happened in, in your first year at school. And everybody was like working up to, well, there were two things you worked up to in biology, the birds and the bees lesson. And the, the second one was the rat. Uh, dissection that seemed to be a rite of passage for anybody that went to secondary school in in those days we never actually did it in secondary school i don't think anybody ever did but they they seem to just show it to the the little scared 10 year olds you know maybe it's that kind of (laughs) this is what can happen to you mullins if you step out of line yeah (laughs) well my mum was like uh did you enjoy it today (laughs) do we have to do rats rats every day mum cut up rats come (laughs) up stick in a football hide yeah (laughs) god dear Well, um, so, yeah, I don't know how we got to that from David Hearn. Oh, yeah, we were talking <laughs> we were talking about the college. But what a guest. Looking forward to that. Yeah, I um, know. It was, it was, he's, he's been a hero of mine for yeah, a long, long time. So it was, a, it was a, a real pleasure to speak to him. And, and that, that is, you know, you, you were driving past him. Pro- you were within a, a reaching distance of him. Every day you drove past, probably, <laughs> yeah. weren't you? Um, this, uh, I, I, should we do a bump to the front first or just, uh, just something about Boxgate <laughs> since it's, oh, <laughs> don't Let, let's do a, we need to do the, we need to look after our patrons. Yeah. Let's do very, a bump to the front. Very good to us. Tim helps about Boxgate. No, oh. um, Tim, <laughs> Tim helps. Uh, question for the show. Hi, Kev. Hi, Neil. Would you like to see some X series leaf shutter lenses from Fuji? There, there's a tongue twist if you say it quickly. This will give X cameras the special powers that the X100 range has with high sync flash. High flash sync. High sync flash. What way around is that? Anyway, yeah, he's right. Um, yeah. I remember you doing some uh, brilliant uh, pictures with uh, the, the high flash sync, sync flash high uh, when you were in. In Spain, I'm sorry to mention the war, but in those days that you used to spend a month in Spain, you did some round the swimming pool with Alps, didn't you? Yeah, on the X100, that yeah. was the X100S. Yeah. yeah, that was my X100S that I dropped to the bottom of the swimming pool. Oh God. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, uh, thinking about that question, now I don't know for sure because I'm not uh, I'm not an engineer, but 
fairly sure the leaf shutter is inside the body of the camera, not the lenses. So Tim mentioned lenses with the leaf shutter. So I'm not oh. sure whether that's a thing. The lens, the shutter, the leaf shutter would be in the body, yeah. I believe. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I might be wrong. Carl or Andreas may, may well pick us up on that. But I would also say that I am 100% sure that if that was possible and made a camera feasible, feasibly reasonably priced, yeah. then Fujifilm would definitely have looked it. into that. Yeah. There will be a reason why it's not a thing. Um and it could well be because the interchangeable cameras, the sensors, I don't know, the space inside, uh, you know, the dust that might get in, whatever. Of course, on the X100, it's, it's a non-changeable yeah, lens, so you don't unit, get anything yeah. in there. Yeah. Um, so I don't, I don't really know the answer, but my, my gut feeling is that if it was possible, they would have done it. Mm. Um, but they haven't. What happened? So I don't think it is. What happened to that 100S in the end? Did, did it work again for you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It did work fine. It's a bit rusty, but it still works. I've still got it. It's on my little shelf of love. Yeah. Um, yeah. Worked fine. I, dry, I jumped in. I, Albie fell in the in the pool, you see, and I had to decide whether I would dive in to save Albie or dive in and save the camera. Which one came first? Well, I figured that Albie's got arms and legs and the camera hasn't. So, so you know, he had a better chance. <laughs> you rescued the camera first. <laughs> Dad, what are you doing? Well, oh, poor Alps. X100S, um, and now the monitor. Um, your question. Right, okay, Facebook group. Thank you so much for keeping posting on the Facebook group. It's very good of you. I am, as I usually do, I'm going to go right down to the bottom and start there and then work my way up. Uh, this question is from Chris Stevenson. Uh, okay, this is this is directed at me. It says, hi, Kevin. I'm, uh, I'm just curious, with the recent move to the biggest studio in such uncertain times, what prompted it? What was the thought process behind it? And if you were to go back a year as we went into our first lockdown, would you have imagined not doing a single wedding for a year um, <laughs> and still being in a position to make this move? If no, what changed since then? Thanks. But, well, you should probably know that, that Kev actually has a bed in that studio and Gemma made him get there next to the studios. And you're not living here anymore with all your filthy habits. That <laughs> well, wasn't the, But to be fair, you were thinking about this studio before the pandemic, weren't you, of, of upsizing? Uh, well, yeah, yes and no. I mean, uh, so what, what actually happened was... Uh, back, you know, if we go, if we rewind, back to January, March time yeah. last year. Uh, no, it would never, never been something. I, I, I mean, I, my love, I had a lovely little studio. It wasn't a studio; it was an office. Really, it was somewhere I would go and work. I couldn't. I mean, I did do a little bit of shooting in there, but it was never comfortable. I never really. I was not in the. You know, it wasn't crossing my mind to move. However. Obviously, then all the weddings went and we, I went home, stayed at home for however long we did. And uh, in that time, the people who had the, this uh, space opposite me, which is much, much bigger and much more beautiful, they, they also started working from home and their boss decided that actually we have no need for an office. They didn't go bust or anything. They just said, well, why should we pay for that when we, can, we clearly can do our job? with everybody working at home so they uh the landlords i saw the landlord one day i happened to be in the um in my old place that you know on the same day he turned up and and i said to him well what's happened to them and he said they've gone and i said oh well hang on let's let me this this could be and that's when my mind started ticking and and i wasn't i didn't know the price of the place or anything at that point but but my mind was thinking the reason why i ended up here was ultimately because Right in the middle of it all, this would this was what was this September last year, perhaps yeah. October when it first started. When I first started thinking about this, 
I honestly couldn't see weddings being a thing for a long time. And, uh, you know, so it's, it's a gamble. My, essentially, my thought process was, well, if I can't get back to the same level of weddings that I had previously, I need to roll a dice and uh, hope that dice lands on six because, uh, you know, I need to do something else. So, so the studio now has a nice big training area and a, and a shooting space, which whilst, you know, I'm probably not going to be shooting that much in there myself personally, although I'll do a bit. I'm hoping to to kind of rent out to other photographers and things like that. And, and so it's very much, it's very much a gamble, but also it's, um, you know, it's kind of working, playing on my mind that perhaps I don't want to be shooting the, mm. you know, 25, 30 weddings that I used to shoot a year, uh, which I know isn't a lot for a lot of people. But, uh, you know, I think I will still shoot weddings. I still want to shoot weddings. But maybe I, if I can make this place work, then maybe I can kind of rein that in a little bit, put the wedding prices up perhaps, and, you know, and, and kind of have a few less. Do, just you, have a, do you have a number of weddings that you'd ideally like to do in a year? One. One. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I'm joking. I, I love weddings. And, and you know, I know... <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm always conscious of when I, I, I try and be funny and I think, oh, I know I've got wedding clients yeah. that listen to this podcast. I, yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, uh, no, I, so I, I mean, for me, honestly, because I remember I don't do the org, I, I don't work in August. I don't, I don't work in the school holidays, basically, if I can help it. Yeah. So I have a very limited amount of time that I can do the, those weddings in. And so normally, I, last, when we were back in normal times, I think that I did 29 weddings. And I found that a bit uncomfortable because it was, you know, it was all, it was basically every weekend that, uh, you know, that that was in between the school holidays. And, you know, uh, so, yeah, maybe 20, I think, would be a nice number for me. Yeah. See, um, I, now I, I picked up a couple of the weddings that you don't want to do in August. Yeah. Um, which I'm, you know, obviously very thankful for, Kev. But I, I was thinking, well, Kev's obviously going to work this August, isn't he, to make up for all that time lost? But no. but you've you've stayed very faithful to that. Um, I, I, I will work in that. I will be in the studio, and I will probably. I mean, I'm still hope. You know, I mean, it's a it's a remote hope. Yeah. That we might get to Spain. Um, but you know, oh, look, well, do you know if you'd have said that to me this time? Uh, well, maybe uh, I'm looking at the day that this goes out. Ten days ago, maybe I'd have said, I don't think so, Kev. I think it's very unlikely. And then the news changed a little bit about seven yeah. days ago. So who knows? Who yeah, knows? I, I agree. I mean, that's. It, it, I still think it's a remote uh, thing. But maybe. Anyway, if it doesn't, uh, that's why I've still kept it, it empty. So if we can't go, yeah. then I'll still be doing stuff in the studio. And maybe I'll do some yeah. uh, workshops or whatever. I'll kick off my YouTube channel again. But But, yeah, I'm not doing weddings. In, in August, I just I never liked weddings in August. I have to say, um, well, it's, it's, it's one of the warmest. Well, it's a mild. It's ne not necessarily rain free, as I found out, but it's a mild month. It's much much nicer than a January or February event. Sometimes not all Januarys and Februarys, because some of them are mild days. But sometimes you'll be like, "What? Oh, how cold is this?" Uh, yeah, I know. I agree, and and I I, I just remember that on the very rare occasions I had bridezillas, they were always in August, and it was always because they they paid careful, Kev. Extra. Well, no, it's true. They paid extra. You know, because they to pay a premium for August. The venues charge oh, more. Right. Everybody charges more in August. I think you say it's a premium to be horrible to Kev in August. <laughs> Cost you five hundred then... quid more to be horrible to me. All right, I'll pay. Uh, and then, you know, they turn up in the middle of August and the weather's rubbish and that puts them in a bad mood and, you know, and, and everybody, because then the sun comes out and, 
Uncle George drinks way too much and in the sun gets Good old burnt. Uncle and, George. You know, another one, Uncle George. Another one. Go on, have another one. Oh, another one. Oh, you don't look too well. <laughs> so uh yeah so i, I stopped doing all yeah, this I, I do see that talking of courses though this is a, a, a well dovetailed uh join into um something that we have to uh announce have you uh, for- or re-announce have you, have you forgotten <laughs> yeah so um well some of you will remember that we had a uh workshop planned neil and i um, at Amateur Studios in North London. I think it was originally in... God. When was it? I think it was... was it last April or June? April. Something like yeah. that. Yeah. Then we moved it to October. Yeah. And clearly none of that happened. So we've now got a, a new date for it, which will be... Uh, I can't remember what I said now. July, July 20th. July 20th, yeah, which is a Tuesday. July 20th, yeah. So um, we do have some people booked on it already. But there will be spaces because, um, uh, you know, hopefully by then there will, we'll be allowed to have a few more people yeah. in the room and stuff. And this is the new Kevgaff as well, isn't it? No, this oh. is at Amersham. Oh, no, it's at Amersham. Sorry, I apologise. No, rewind. And this, up, is a, and this is at Amersham, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is at Amersham. Yeah. Amersham Studios. So, We'll um, never know. I'll, yeah, let, so I'll edit that bit out. By the time you listen to this podcast, yeah. I will, I will put the um, the workshop stuff yes. back on yeah. my Kevin Mullins Workshops website. So the Neil and Kevin workshop, and um, we were it was essentially going to be you and I talking about or, or you, you, documentary photography, yep. storytelling, yep. a little bit about um, photo films and filmmaking and things like that. So yeah. just the two of us, just the two of us, <laughs> uh, and hopefully a handful of you lot. Yeah, otherwise that, otherwise that would be a bit weird. Be me and Kev teaching each other. Yeah, um, but the other thing we should mention is that we we are hopefully yeah. going to be back in the same room as each other soon. Yes, in two weeks, maybe two two or three weeks. Oh, two, two or three weeks, weeks yeah. Weeks. And we will then be planning full steam ahead, putting our our planning heads together. Is this the announcement? Well, hold on, hold no, on, hold on. No, warning, don't, don't warning. Guns. Oh, am I getting too excited? <laughs> getting too excited <laughs> for uh, yeah, but we will be planning something different and a little bit more special oh kev you went so far forward then you just you just pulled back i, I know well it's, it, that's what that's that's teasing isn't it that's what they do it that's was meant to do. tease who really wants to know what kev had to say then <laughs> i know he's not going to say it though even nope. if you twisted his little finger but maybe once we're together when we can plan things properly then we can uh we can we can yeah. do it yeah Good. I feel like with 50 miles of internet between us, it's not planable properly. No, it is a bit trickier. Um, right, question from Mark Dell. Hello, great show, etc. I have a question. So long as they do a good job, are you against weekend warriors that have a job where photography isn't their primary income stream? I started off just like this when one of the, uh, the members of a photography forum I was a member of really liked my portrait work. I second shot with him for two years, then off I went as a weekend warrior until I left my well-paid income and truly went pro. Sadly, my health marked up this plan, as you may remember I had to give up. But if you're advising somebody like a young me, would you say the weekend warrior approach is the best route still? This is for listeners who may be at the same stage. Keep it up, chaps, from Mark Dell. Now, we haven't used the weekend warrior um, tag, I hate that tag term. for a while. Yeah, and, and we, we it wasn't, yeah... It's not a very nice term, is it? Because in in some respects, we've all started at a weekend warrior position or stage, haven't we? Mm, yeah, well, I didn't, but yeah, most people do. I agree. Oh, no, um, you went straight in, didn't you? <laughs> straight in a deep yeah. end. Uh, I um, well, personally, myself, I, I um, Mark made a valid point there about if they are good. Yeah. 
And I, I think it has to extend from that in that if they are good and that they understand business insurance and, you know, or the the ethics of a business, then no, absolutely not. I think, um, you know, there's there's a place for everybody. Who are we to say just because we are full time that they can't be? Yeah. That's that's not for us. Um, I do think, though, however, that you can. You can certainly have a day job and shoot weddings, especially if you're, uh, you know, a lot younger than us and, and not have problems with it. But I do feel like if I'd done a nine till five in the city or something like that, would I be in the right mind, frame of mind, physical state to shoot, you know, wedding every Saturday, potentially Sundays as well during that time? Mm. Um, well, that, that would be my, my kind of concern. It's going to be interesting but, as well. A lot, a, a lot of photographers who were full-time wedding photographers who are no longer full-time photographers i've seen a few people say isn't this weird i am now doing whatever job they're doing so i am going to be the weekend warrior once more and these are people that have got two three four maybe 500 weddings under their belts yeah and and you know we're all it's pivoting isn't it it's it's weird times everything changes and you know i, I really don't like that term weekend warrior no. but um it was very derogatory you know, it, it was it was designed to be a derogatory you know, weekend warrior I, oh, God. passive aggressive isn't yeah, it? Don't, I, I don't think take that, them on uh, they'll wreck up they'll wreck your wedding but it's really interesting though um because there are there are professionals who uh, full-time professionals who you know because you're a professional if you're charging if you're even if you've got a full-time day job and you're charging decent rates and you're paying your taxes and you're not taking cash in hand and you've got your insurance and you've got your equipment yep. properly um, sorted, yep. then you're still a, you're just as professional as everybody else. Um, you know, it just means you've got two professions. And there's nothing wrong with that either. But it's interesting, what David Hearn. You'll you'll hear him allude to it in the interview. Um, now, of course, he's from a different generation. Yeah. You know, he's from yeah. he's from a uh, photojournalist generation in the 80s, 70s, well, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. You know, he he made uh, the analogy for him was you know a photographer should be shooting seven or eight hours a day. Mm. Um, he wouldn't want a surgeon to operate on him who only did you know one operation mm-hmm. every six months and then during the rest of the time was a builder mm-hmm. for example so uh the, that analogy is is kind of relevant um although with a different context i think it, it's the fairness of it yeah that's that's the bit i have a tricky situation with and i there are a, a lot of people who shoot weddings on the weekend who do not play fair and that is what i don't like well, and I'm not on about pricing. You can charge whatever you want. Well, I was about know. to ask: is that is that to do with uh, everybody being perhaps VAT registered? Because that that was uh, that was mooted well before well before the pandemic. There was there was you know circulated sort of rumours of well, you know they're thinking about everybody paying VAT. Well, that sort of level the playing field then. Well, VAT is slightly different, isn't it? Because you still have to be turning over eighty eight grand. No, no. That. What I was going to say was going to make everybody pay VAT like they do. Oh, I uh, see. Charge, right. charge VAT like they're doing some some European countries yeah well european countries it's if you've got more than ten thousand euro turnover then you you know it's it's vat isn't it and yeah i mean that that won't level the playing field will it though because if if you're taking cash in hand you're not declaring it so that's you know that that's the big problem there's a lot of people who do you know oh yeah i'll shoot your wedding on the weekend just give me 400 quid you know that's fine i'll stick give it to me on the day i'll stick it in my pocket i have always been uh, absolutely adamant of uh, of 
of no cash because you just you well it causes all sorts of problems i think it 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 causes the and it just feels too informal to me as well for such such an important event well you know it's it's still turnover and as long as you put it through the books and you play fair then then it doesn't matter what i meant by that though kev was the inference of somebody saying cash oh yeah yeah, there's yeah, always a, yeah. there's always an inference. It just feels to me the 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 wrong. I don't know. It just I don't know. Maybe I'm a bit old fashioned. No. Well, I've never had. To, I don't think anybody's ever offered. One person did offer me to pay cash uh, for a wedding in Italy. In fact, he said, "Well, how do we know you'll get you'll come? Can we pay you in cash on the day on the when day. you turn up? Ah, we don't know you're going to turn up." <laughs> and I was like, "Well, you can either pay me now, and I will turn up, or you can choose to pay me on the day, and I definitely won't turn up." <laughs> <laughs> there's your choice. It's your choice, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what did they do, Kev? <laughs> uh, they paid me beforehand. Yeah, great wedding actually. I yeah, bet. It was, yeah, it was in, in oh. uh, Rome. Yeah, I loved that. Bring those days back, hey? Bring those days back. Well, no more working in Europe anymore for us. Not until we get our visas and our carnet for your equipment. Oh, well, it's yeah. Working. It reminds me of uh, my first job working in Lanzarote in in radio and having to hide when the Green Guardia. Um, <laughs> Renault Fours did their, their their little jaunt round the round the block. It never quite worked for me because it was always a bit obvious there was an English plo- bloke speaking on the air who couldn't actually run away. What well, they were all driving Renault Fours? Did you say Renault Fours? Yeah, the Guardia Seville. Yeah, they all had Renault Fours, green, green cars, white doors. Brilliant. Yeah, <laughs> I remember them. Uh, p- people used to say, scatter the Guardia. They're here. Everybody used to run in different directions except me. I mean, I'd, I'd get the rumor. But obviously, I'd just be sat in my chair. Here's Chris Rea. They were the days. And they could be returning. Right, you're right. I think we've got another question. Time for another question before before we hear from David Hearn. Okay, right. We have one from uh, Xavier Ram. Ah, right. That's an ace name as well, isn't it? Xavier Ram. Do you see two-tier production in Fujifilm's future? Let's say X-T5 with a 46-megapixel sensor and an X-T50 with a 26-megapixel sensor, both the same size with more or less same specifications like a Nikon Mm. Z7 and a Z5. Mm. Sensors are not cheap, and high-sensor megapixels will push the price up. This reminds me of those those sort of... Do you remember the Canon 5D thing where you had the one that all the architecture people started to use it didn't sell very well that had a sort of mega sensor in it and everybody really wanted the the sort of 20 something megapixel upgrade and that sort of it i don't think it was a, it just never really worked actually in that system it didn't and i don't know whether the nikon one has has it oh i've no idea about the nikon i can't uh, the canon one i can't remember either i had an i had canon 5ds and 1ds yeah. they were the 1d was a smaller sensor than the, the 5d but far more expensive Mm. The one D, the original one D that I had, one D, well, one the original, but it was a one D Mark IV. Um, that was only an APS-C sensor, and then I think future one Ds became full frame. Yeah, they were full, frame. but the five D was full frame. It was right, right from right from right from day one. Um, but going back to Xavier's question, yeah, do you see two tier production future uh, films future XT five forty six megapixel sensor and XT fifty with twenty six? Well. I think that they've basically gone down the route with the, the medium format, haven't they? So that's uh, the GFX 50 and R and 50S are 51 megapixels. Yeah. So doesn't seem much sense in, in kind of making something that's only four megapixels less than that. The other thing I would say is that they definitely won't do full frame. That's no. that's like 100% guaranteed. And I'm not sure if you're going to get an APS-C sensor at 46 megapixels. I just think that's 
beyond the the physics of it. So uh, my my educated guess at this answer is no. no. Or we shall consider. No, there's no, there's no, there's no uh, such. Thing I think as... it's a we shan't consider. <laughs> <laughs> really, that's one step up. That's Defcon, whatever. Yeah, right. uh, yeah. GFX and APSC is is, is is their line. I'm guessing. Right, David Hearn. Tell me about David. Well, David, David obviously, I'll say obviously, you might not know, is a Magnum photographer, one of the elder generation, elder statesmen, if you like, of Magnum, and a really, really interesting guy. I, you know, I've loved his work forever since ever, since I've ever been involved in photography, and I've been to exhibitions, got his books, I've seen him talk, but I've never spoke to him myself, and and he's one of those guys that I feel like if, if you sat down at seven o'clock in a pub with him and you bought yourself a pint and you bought David a pint and you asked him one question, it'd be before you knew it, it'd be 11 o'clock and neither of you would have touched your pints because <laughs> his stories are so interesting, so engaging. And uh, he's he's just a, a, an incredible, an incredible photographer, but also an incredible storyteller. Well, Kev chatted to David just shy of half hour for this, and they start out by talking about his friendship with the late British film director, Ken Russell. Well, I, I, I worked a lot with Ken. I, I mean, I originally, when I first started in photography, I'd never taken a picture of my life. You know, I, I, I was in the army. And, and, and then when I got out of the army, I went to work in Harrods, uh, to earn a living and every evening I used to go to the coffee bars um, and I just learned to shoot pictures in, in the coffee bar shoot, just shooting pictures in the coffee bar it was actually rather good because A you had interesting people to photograph and in hindsight technically it was quite difficult to deal with you, you know and so you learned all that that sort of stuff and London nightlife was really divided into two parts at that time if you were a painter, primarily you were the pubby part. And if you were a writer and photographer, for some reason, because of journalism or something of that, fitted in with the writers, uh, you were in the coffee bar scene. And so I was photographing or trying to photograph in the coffee bars. And what I learned very quickly is, is that there are doers and talkers. And the doers tend to attract the doers. And the talkers tend to attract the doors, uh, the talkers. So in the coffee bars, it kind of divided into two parts as well. And, and one of the people that I met there was Ken Russell, the young Ken Russell. Um, and and he, he just stopped being a ballet dancer. He was a ballet dancer with the ballet rambe, surprisingly. And, and he had just started to, to shoot some still pictures himself so we obviously gravitated towards each other and uh, around us uh, you know we used to show each other pictures and things and so i became very friends with him and when he started to shoot for the bbc he worked primarily for monitor magazine I, I I worked with him on virtually everything he did and so i did the house in Bayswater, but i also did watch the birdie and I worked on and and was in something like twelve others of his monitor movement. He used to have all his friends in the back, you know, uh, 
playing parts in his movies and things. It was enormous fun. It seems incredible to think that, uh, you know, you'd, you'd go to the coffee shops and you'd bump into to all of these people. And, and I suppose these days, everybody, everybody is a photographer of sorts. And I guess back in the, uh, what would that be, late 50s, early 60s, perhaps? Yeah, was, uh, uh, yeah 55, 56. 55. So, uh, you, you know, the, the amount of people that, that were into photography had cameras, understood what they were doing with them. And this idea of just taking pictures of strangers now, I feel like people struggle with that idea now. I, th I feel like, you know, there's so much uh, almost negativity about photography that it's become more difficult. Do you, do you think that's the case? Or? Well, I think it probably is for young people in that they don't actually communicate with other human beings very much anymore. You see, when I started, the, the people that were around me were uh, that I began to get to know were McCullen, Philip Jones Griffiths, Ian Berry, John Bulmer, Patrick Ward. Essentially, they were all people that were interested in what was called current affairs. My guess is that every single one of us bought every newspaper every morning and, and, and devoured the newspapers and things like that. So we were brought up not thinking there was anything, uh, you know, that's what you did. You, you saw people doing things and you thought this is interesting and you took, took a picture of it. Nowadays, I don't think people, young people now are, are that interested in other people. It seems to me we suddenly have a much more narcissistic society, much more narcissistic culture that is, is extremely interested in, in what each person do, themselves does, but is, is not very interested in the rest of the world, you know. So it's a major change. So I find now when I go around, because I'm so ingrained into a way of shooting, which I'm not about to change, I don't find any problems at all. Um, you know, you've learned all the tricks of smiling and, and looking non-threatening and dressing in a very ordinary way. You know, you're not trying to be flamboyant or anything like that. And all these things, I, I, I mean, I find, uh, well, let's put it this way. I've never, ever been threatened by another human being shooting pictures. So I, it, it, to me, it's not a problem. But I can see, I mean, when I talk to young people, one of the things they continually say to me is, oh, you can't do that. And I say, well, what do you mean I can't do that? I did it. <laughs> you know, there's the picture. And, and, and they're totally puzzled how I can just go and shoot pictures of people talking to each other or hugging each other or doing whatever they do. It, it's, it's just it's a cultural thing, I think. Going back to you mentioned that you, you left the army and then you went to work at Harrods. Uh, was it around about that time that the, the trip to Hungary happened? For the revolution? Yeah, more or less was that... right away. I mean, what actually happened? See, I was in the army and, and uh, basically because I was very dyslectic and, and, and I had no qualifications. So, so when I left school, um, the obvious thing to do was to go and do what was then called national service. You had to go in the army for 18 months. And so I elected to go straight from school. And it happened that I was exceptionally good at sports, etc. And 
very much on the back of that, I ended up at Sandhurst, which is sort of, as it says over the door, come here and be an officer and a gentleman. And and it seemed fine. I mean, I thought, why not? You know, here I am. I will go up through the ranks of Sandhurst and, uh, you know, it seemed to me a reasonable, honest living. And, and, and actually, I quite enjoyed it because I was suddenly in a place where I was doing the equivalent of a university course. But it was, you know, uh, it was an academic course, and which I would never have done. And, and I actually enjoyed it all. It was just that whilst I was there in the officer's mess or the cadet's mess, as it was then, um, picked up a, 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 a copy of Picture Post, which was a wonderful magazine of, of that type. I, I don't know if you ever saw it uh, uh, way before your time, um, but it was a it was a fantastic magazine. And in it was a picture that I looked at and I started to cry. Now, starting to cry is not something you normally do in the officer's mess. At the, at and the reason I started to cry was because what I saw was a picture of a Russian army officer buying his wife a hat in a department store. Now, that doesn't sound a very uh, picture for crying over, but my dad was always away all the time during the Second World War, so I never saw him, really. So the first real memory I have of him was coming back after the Second World War, and the first thing he did was to take my mum with me in tow to Howells in Cardiff, and he bought her a hat. And so my first memory of the love between my father and my mother was the buying of a hat in house. And I looked at it and the picture in Picture Post, of course, brought back that time and made me cry. And I remember thinking, isn't that extraordinary that a photograph can produce such unbelievable emotion? And I really liked that. And we'd been having a lot of propaganda at Santos, rightly so, by very intelligent people that were telling us that, you know, the Russians were our enemies and all Russians ate their children sort of approach to the world. And I suddenly looked and I saw this guy there buying his wife a hat in Moscow. And I thought, well, that's not true. You know, in Moscow, they buy hats for their wives. So... I saw two things. One, that photography could produce extreme emotion. And, you know, I didn't tell you, that could be anger, it could be love, it could be all sorts of things. But it could also, it could also counteract propaganda. And I really remember sitting down and saying, I'd like a bit of that. That sounds to me fun. Because of the fact that I'd been there under national service, I could get out of the army. So I'd never shot a picture in my life. I didn't know a single photographer, didn't know anybody was or anything. But I decided I wanted to be a photographer because I wanted to go and do that, you know. And frankly, I, I've shot the same picture ever since. I was very, very lucky because most people find it very difficult to find their own particular voice, what it is they want to do. Uh, you know, McCullen found it because McCullen works best when his adrenaline is going. So he found a niche 
that produces his adrenaline, which kept with him all his life. So that even when he sort of retired from being very active, even when he photographs the landscape, he doesn't go outside the front front door unless it's pissy with rain and cold and 15, you know, the wind's blowing. In other words, even his landscape needs his adrenaline going, you know. And I was lucky in that before I even had a camera, I knew in in photography what I wanted to do. It, it's what John Updike calls the exotic of the mundane. I just loved the idea of seeing two people hugging each other. I'm similar. My my work, I like to think, is driven by emotion. But yeah. but interestingly, that first picture you mentioned of the Russian soldier and the yeah. hat, uh, and that's th- this idea of nostalgia, isn't it? You know, we see a picture. Um, you know, and a, a benign picture of that day in 30, 40 years' time can be the most powerful picture in the most incredible situation. Absolutely. And the beauty about photography, it's the only form of communication which, by definition, gets better as it gets older. Hmm. You can have a really quite mundane picture, and in 50 years' time, it might not be a better picture, but it takes on a sociological importance so i always see my job particularly when i came back to wales and decided to do a rather pompous thing um 1970 i i suddenly thought well if i spend 30 percent of my time which by that time i could afford to do not you know not to have to earn money out of it if i photograph 30 percent of my time i will have the biggest collection on wales not only has anybody ever done, but nobody's going to do more than that. You know, I can't see another idiot spending 30% of their time photographing around Wales in the way that I do. Um, no, is, is that what became Land of My Father, the book? Yeah, yeah. well, it, 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 yeah. Land of My Father was really a third of it. I, I was living in London. I was, by that time, pretty successful. Um, you know, I had a studio and all that sort of stuff. And I suddenly realized I was spending an enormous amount of money in London doing things which were simply keeping me going. In other words, to keep a studio up was very expensive. So you take the sort of pictures that you can take, you know, fashion pictures primarily. But the fashion didn't pay very much money. But but if you worked for Harper's Bazaar, it meant that you also did Morley stockings and Aquascutum, and, and they paid enormous amounts of money. And 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 that's that getting that amount of money allowed me to go and do the things I really wanted to do. But I was still doing a lot of stuff I, I didn't really want to do. And I thought I'd take it a year off and gamble and go back home, which is where well, Cardiff was my home. And, and I would see if I could function from there. And I went back to Wales and, and I suddenly discovered not only could I function perfectly well from there, but that I was, uh, my expenses were about a third of what they were in London. Mm. So it gave me enormous freedom. So we, we um, I, I, there's a, a, mute, a mutual friend, I think, called Linda, who lives in Malmesbury. And she was mentioning the, the pistol from, oh. <laughs> with Russia, from, from Russia with Love. Yeah, well, well that, that, was, that was interesting. But my job would be to try to find stories within the making of the film 
that magazines could publish. The film companies would always give out free material from their still photographer. The magazines wanted something exclusive to the, themselves. So I would go and work on a film and do some, you know, intimate thing with Sophia Loren making spaghetti in her apartment during the making of the film or something. And, and that, that would make a little story which would go in an, an Italian magazine exclusively to that magazine. And so I started to do that. Over a period of time, I, I began to meet people. And one of the people that I met was Dick Lester. Dick Lester had, was, had directed the running, jumping and standing still film for the BBC, which meant I met Peter Sellers and, and, and Spike Milligan and Johnny Antrobus and Ray Gorton and Alan Simpson, who were all in the same agency. And suddenly Dick Lester was asked to make the Beatles film because they had seen this, the Peter Sellers film. And, and I, this was a hard day's night. Was it a hard day's and night? And so it was a hard day's night. So Dick said to me, would I do specials on the hard day's night? And so I said, yeah, absolutely fine. As long as I don't have to pose the, all I was, I said, I'm much more interested in the relationship between the four lads and their fans and things. And round about the same time, Tom Carlyle was, was doing the first of the James Bond film. And he phoned me up and he said, look, David, I've got this little second division film to do, you, you know, with, with somebody called Sean Connery, who is, is actually, he has been on the stage, but I don't think he's ever made a movie. And Ursula Andres, who's quite well known, but actually has never made a movie, you know, and, and, and help me out, come and work on this film, you see. So I went and, and worked on the, the first film, which was, I think, Dr. No, was it or something? It was so low budget that they didn't even have a poster or anything. And suddenly it, it, they did a premiere of it and it was a phenomenal success because it was meant to be by the director serious, but actually it turned out to be very funny and everybody quite liked that. And so they had to rush out a second film, which meant they needed a poster. There we were in West London Studios, which is right by the side of the Chelsea football ground. And uh, we've got Sean there and, and, and about five of the girls that were in the movie and Cubby Broccoli had come over from America and, and Tom Carlyle was there. And Tom comes up to me and he said, David, he says, I've forgotten the gun. It happened that as a hobby, I did pistol target shooting and to quite a high level. And so what I actually had was a Walther air pistol. I said, look, Tom, they won't know the bloody difference. The box that it comes in, it's got Walther written on the outside of it. The only difference is that it's got different sights and it's got this very long barrel. So I said, all, we, all you've got to do is, after we shot the pictures, is in the design department, they cut the barrel off and change the thing. So Tom and I know the secret, you know. Sean <laughs> doesn't know the secret. So Sean Connery is standing there, posing away with his air pistol. And, you know, all the girl, we do all those pictures, and it's great success. 
The problem is, is that they forget to tell the design department to cut the barrel off, etc. So the original posters for the James Bond film are all Sean Connery with an air pistol. <laughs> Your air pistol. My air pistol. That goes on even more because I had the air pistol and, and obviously it gets worn after a time. So I thought, oh, I don't need it anymore. So I was just going to give it to Oxfam or someone, you know. And then somebody t said to me, look, they're doing a, a thing of Bond memorabilia. Why don't you put it in? So I, I phoned up Sotheby's, it was. I think it, I think it was Sotheby's, it might have been Christie's, and, and said, look, I've got this. Is this a good idea? And they said, oh, yeah, it'd be very good. And to my total amazement, it got 8,000 quid. So anyway, I bought it and didn't think anymore. And then about six months later, it sold for 20,000 quid. And the latest sale it sold was for 250,000 quid. Wow. That's extraordinary. And I think it's gone to a big hamburger store or somewhere that has wow. memorabilia in new york or something it's a beautiful story um and you meant you mentioned uh, during that little conversation about the beatles and yeah. and filming uh, the hard days night and and you actually then said which i thought was interesting that you were interested in the relationship between the beatles themselves and the fans yeah. and if, if there's one photograph of that time that sticks out for me, it's the one with uh, Ringo sat in the chair of the of the carriage peering out, and you have these these women pressed up against the window. You know, they've all got yeah. their little point yeah. and shoot cameras, yeah. and it's an incredible picture. You, you must be you must be really proud of all of that work. Well, I I, I enjoy doing it. I enjoy doing it because I, I was allowed to do what I wanted to do. And, and not what the normal newspaper photographer would do. Um, mm. It was very bizarre because Dick Lester, for some peculiar reason, shot the whole thing on a moving train going from Marylebone down to, I think, Cornwall or somewhere and back. So the last thing they wanted in these little carriages was a bloody me as a photographer, you know, which didn't really <laughs> worry me that much because... I didn't have much pressure to photograph them being filmed, you know. But I would, you know, the train would stop every so often for some reason. I'm not quite sure why. And, and I would sort of leap off the train and try to photograph the fans all trying to get into the train and this, that and the other. And, then, and I, I had a lovely time. I, I enjoyed doing it. I enjoyed the poor boy's relationship with the fans because it was just at its most fanatical then. A sweet story, if you want to do that, is that we used to play Monopoly together. And, and bizarrely, I don't have a single picture of us playing Monopoly. I was obviously so uh, sort of uh, aggressive myself that I wanted to win that I wouldn't get up from the table to, to, to shoot a picture. But it, it was fun and, and, and um, it, it was interesting. I, I, I never, they were very strange because they virtually were never, ever together as a four. The picture I have of the four of them around the piano is almost the only picture that I have of the four of them together. Mm. You saw them together when they were posed, and they were such extraordinarily different people. You know, George was the fanatic, you know, he wanted to be the best musician in the world and was willing to go to India to learn all sorts of things, you know. And 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 John was off in a little world of his own, and 
and and and um, Paul, you know, was obviously the probably the best of the the, the lyric writers, and, and and Ringo was just, you know, went and set up Bricky Bricks Limited afterwards. You know, he was a a born builder, <laughs> but I liked them, and 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 I thought they were. You know they worked hard and and, and and they you know they they put the effort into being as good as they were and that's nice i like people that put in effort well that kind of comes full circle to what you said at the beginning didn't it about photography and uh you know the people the doers that do and the talkers that talk absolutely and 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 to me it it in all the forms of communication or art, whatever you like to call them, I, I you know, who knows. But um, the one thing that the people that do things really well have in common is that they work their butts off. You know, you think of Beethoven, and you think of Mozart, you think of, you know, Francis Bacon, um, I knew Lucian Freud, the painter, quite well. You know, you couldn't go to his studio where he wasn't when he wasn't painting. He wasn't buggering about. You know, he was a, he was a painter, and 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 I've always felt that about photography. You know, if people work in Tesco's, they work in Tesco's. You know, let's say from eight o'clock till five o'clock. You 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 know, why should people do photography for less time than that? I mean, photography is more fun to do than work in Tesco. I mean, how dare people think that they don't have to put in the effort, you know? How dare people think that they can be great photographers in less time than somebody can be a surgeon? And a surgeon takes 12 years to learn his how to do it, you know, through repetition. And and so, uh, you know, my advice to young photographers always is just go and shoot lots and lots of pictures because there's not much sense if you want to do very well in photographing like everybody else. Mm. You're, by definition, going to be like everybody else, you know. And the one thing we know that if if there was a... A village fate in 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 and Kadelka was staying with me and Bresson was staying with me and Lee Friedlander was staying with me and pick whoever you like. If we all went down to photograph the village fate, we wouldn't be in competition with each other. We would come back and we would each have a different set of pictures, and that's authorship, and that's finding what is you. And the reason that Friedlander is Friedlander is because he shoots pictures like Friedlander. Yeah. And Kadelka is Kadelka because he shoots pictures like Kadelka. And you can't do it. I, I mean, I when I'm in trouble, when I'm photographing and I'm in trouble, in other words, nothing seems to be working. What do I do? I say to myself, I wonder what picture Kadelka would take. Or I wonder what picture Sergio Lorraine would take. Or I wonder what picture Martin Parr would take. And you can't do it. I try very hard to go out and shoot my Martin Parr picture. But I can't do it. I can't do it because Martin Parr shoots Martin Parr pictures. Yeah. And I don't. And, and, 
And I think that's wonderful because we've all got the same bloody thing. We've all got a box with a hole in the front. Yeah. And it's extraordinary that within that box with a hole in the front, you can tell, you know, not if you just see one picture or two pictures, but show me a dozen picture by any, what I would think is for me, a major photographer. And I'll tell you who shot the pictures. And just wanting to be a photographer doesn't make you take good pictures. Uh, you know, caring about something doesn't mean you can become a social worker. You, you know, it certainly doesn't mean to say that you can go and work for an NGO, which is a highly, highly, highly skilled thing. You know, it obviously helps enormously if you do care for people, but just caring and sitting at home talking about caring isn't of enormous use to anybody. Frankly, I have one final question for yeah, you, yeah, David. Yeah. Um, and you, you kind of al almost answered it just now, but and it's a bit of a it's a bit of a curveball question. Um, so if you could if you could spend one day with one other photographer, either alive or dead, who might that be? Oh, Kadelka. Kadelka. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't. I, I, you know, I I would vaguely think about Sergio Lebrane, but Sergio was such a such a sort of Buddhist philosophy or something. It wouldn't being with Sergio was not in the same way fun. Being with Joseph is just a riot. But Joseph is my bro my brother. I, you know, I lived in the same place with him for eight or eleven years or something. I, 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 you know, we phone each other all the time. We introduce each other as this is my brother, um, and uh, undoubtedly. And what a friendship to have. Uh, thanks to David Hearn and, of course, links to him and to the book that comes shortly, which is featured today, will be on fujicast.co.uk. If you like your interviews, two stories this week over on Photography Daily, after, of course, you've consumed all there is here. Today, Monday, a story to, well, to really show the skies a, a limit worth aiming for. I love these sort of stories of the, if you will, uh, everyday normal folk who have made photography their professional success stories. I talked with Roy Tyson of Roy's People, who left a career as a motor mechanic to become a sort of photographer, come artist, come ad creative. He's uh, turned making pictures of small modelling figures in a large, normal-sized world into a new career, one well, new-ish now. It's proof that having an idea and believing in yourself can lead you anywhere. In Roy's case all the way to the Saatchi Gallery. I had my dad in one ear saying, you've got to get a job. Yeah. Um, I'd also just got my first mortgage. And um, so he's saying, you've got to get a job, you've got to get a job. And I'm like, well, I started selling these bits on eBay. What if I'm onto something here? And then on Wednesday, Andrew D. Bernstein, who's uh, an American sports photographer. He is the legend of NBA photography. The greats have all been featured and photographed by this man, including an enduring relationship with the late Kobe Bryant, who of course we'll talk about in terms of uh, their book and time spent together. Andrew also shares working in sport photography at the very highest level and how to make it as a pro sports photographer. You have to be a genuine person. You have to come through with promises that you make. You have to meet deadlines. You have to treat people respectfully. Andrew D. Bernstein is with us on Wednesday. Photography Daily is available wherever you get your podcasts and online at photographydaily.show. Right, back to your questions. Um, Kev, we've left it long enough. Boxgate. 
It is funny. It's a theme. It's sort of run and run, hasn't it? Well, first of all, we had uh, Tilty Screen Gate. Yeah. <laughs> I think this might have this might have trumped Tilty Screen Gate. Yeah, I think it probably has. I mean, look at the uh, the face. Is that Facebook post still growing every day with mentions and, and comments and thoughts? I've stopped looking. <laughs> you got in, you got in a reasonable amount of trouble for it. I had so, I've had some. But then I, I've, yeah, I've, no- I've had some great emails. Some people going, yeah, I totally uh, agree with you. I Waste of yeah. space boxes. No, I know. And then I had one uh, anonymous email. Uh, uh-huh. You know, it was from the email address was something like Mister Jones two thousand and ninety nine at gmail dot com. <laughs> And it was something along the lines of, how the hell can you you pretend to be um, a person of importance in the photography world, which I don't, by the way, um, and telling people that they should you know, dispense of their boxes. That's how cameras keep their value. You're a disgrace, blah, 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 really? blah. Really? Oh, yeah. Chill out. I replied with a picture of a box in a bin, and, um, <laughs> but it bounced back. So it was obviously a made-up email address. Oh, that's a shame. Oh, what a shame. <laughs> I did something about it actually uh, last Thursday in in my Patreon area in Photography Daily. I, I sort of mentioned Boxgate and I talked about this unholy mess, the, sort of the, this uh, sort of chaos that creatives um, thrive by, and 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 it was um, sort of a conversation with a friend of mine really where we were talking about um, this thing. The, I mean, it's not new. This Boxgate and 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 uh, as I said in in the in the podcast in that patreon podcast is it's not particularly new this sort of scruffy way of working it was in, in the bbc it was almost worn like a badge of honor there was a particular producer brilliant producer i worked with honestly you could not see his desk i don't i, I think in all the time i don't think he'd ever cleaned anything away in uh, it, it just mounted up and up and up and up and up and up but um I, I, people get really quite um what's the word Angry. <laughs> angry. Yeah, maybe angry. Unnecessarily angry. Unnecessarily angry, yeah. Anyway, Peter... Chill out. That's my, 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 my advice is yeah. chill out. Throw your boxes out. <laughs> well, yeah, you should have more of this feeling. It is what it is. It is what it is. Absolutely. Peter Foote says, at the risk of causing Kevin to spontaneously combust, here is my take on the camera box discussion. Strap yourselves in. You see, it's all a question, in my opinion, of provenance. I like that part of France. And I'm not referring to... Oh, no, he says, I'm not referring to that beautiful area of France. (laughs) Um, If you buy a camera from somebody that supplies it with the original documentation and recyclable cardboard box, it's far more likely that the owner will have been the type of person that absolutely loves their kit, is kind to their children, picks up other folks' uh, litter and gently wipes down their pristine cameras after every use uses the blower to dust off the lens before reapplying lens cap, and on cold and rainy nights wipes it down gently with lint-free wipes before offering it a warm saucer of milk, then placing it lovingly into its beautiful Italian leather soft-lined bag. He didn't actually put with dividers, but I'll add that there. Conversely, if it comes without a box and is just wrapped in miles of bad-for-the-environment plastic bubble wrap, it may well have been owned by somebody that just tosses their cameras into bags, just like a mechanic might treat a cheap spanner and without the lens cap on. And if you're really unlucky, one of those owners that never cleans their sensors. <laughs> well, no, that's a direct dig at me, isn't it? But because I don't clean my sensors, I keep my ba- cameras all in one bag. They all rattle around together. He did do a smile. Um, he did do a smiley emoji. I know he did. And yeah. he did. No, he had, he had a great show. Really, regards Peter Foot. He's one of our supporters. So he's, be, he's, he's nice being guy. a bit of a he's being a bit of a sausage here. He's a nice guy. He's, um, <laughs> yeah, I, 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 but yes, I um, uh, no. 
The bubble wrap thing is... Looks to it all. <laughs> the bubble wrap thing, by the way, is a very good point. Because MPB, they don't send out bubble wrap. They save... What is it? 1,600 football pitches worth of bubble wrap a year are saved by the recyclable packaging that they do. So they must be applauded for that because that bubble wrap stuff's horrible. Yeah, no, I haven't seen bubble wrap in a long time, actually. Even from Amazon, uh, you know, it's when Fujifilm... I'm getting a lens today, in fact, which I shall uh, dispense of the box lovingly <laughs> later on this evening. Uh, they send it with those little, I don't know if they're polystyrene or whatever, but those little kind of pellets. But they're little. just as bad, Kev. No, 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 they're Are not, they? because you just reuse them. Oh, dear. Well, yeah, That's the you whole could point say you reuse bubble wrap, but it's but the, the reality is that this, this stuff ends up in the system somewhere, so... Anything no, that... these ones are not. These these are uh, definitely recyclable ones for sure. Okay. They wouldn't be using. Would you eat it? Well, I'd eat anything with brown sauce on it. <laughs> so look, Boxgate rumbles on, um, and uh, it is quite amusing. But don't take it too seriously. Yeah, don't send me anonymous emails. Hate emails. Oh, Kev. Um, do you want to do? Uh, should we have one from the, the that isn't Boxgate? Should we have one from your uh, your Facebook group and then uh, and then we'll do the the book of the week. Okay, so this is from Stephen Anker. He says, uh, I have openly taken photographs of bands and artists at a local festival in recent years. Is there any reason why I could not offer some of my work for sale at a local exhibition? And he goes on to say, best podcast ever, yada, yada, yada. There's a load of other stuff, but yada, yada will fill. So taking pictures at events, bands and artists, can he sell the pictures? Well, you can um, show them on your portfolio, I believe, but, but selling them, I'm not so sure because... The band, the publisher, they hold the rights not just to the music but to the performance, isn't? Is it grey area or is that the way it works, Kev? Uh, I I don't know the answer, but my gut feeling would be unless you're unless you've got an accreditation and you're in the photography pit, um, if there were one, then you know if you're just a, a somebody in the audience, then I'm guessing you probably are not within your rights to sell those pictures. Uh, I don't know for sure though. But that's my gut feeling. Uh, you know, if you're in the, if if you've got your little uh, lanyard around your neck that says photographer, and you're, you know, you're there for, I don't know, newspaper or magazine or something, then I think probably the the rights and rules are slightly different. But yeah, yeah I would guess. I remember going to see Kylie Minogue concert once with my mate Fatty, and we <laughs> we we um we got thrown out because he kept taking pictures on his little point and shoot camera. This is years ago. And they, they had, it was like these big burly men were walking around watching for people using cameras. And he would not stop, would not stop taking pictures. So um, we got chucked out. <laughs> oh, that's a shame. How many, how much of the Kylie Minogue concert did you get to see? Uh, no, uh, probably about half of it. But it, it, oh. it, it all changed. It was weird because we then ended up upstairs with, with someone else who then said that they could take us backstage and meet her. And then, uh, and then they, it didn't, it didn't happen. It was a very long oh. conversation. I think we've talked oh. about it before. But anyway, we did get through. We got thrown out. Oh, thrown out of a Kylie Minogue concert. How embarrassing. I also... Did I ever tell you my other story about Kylie Minogue? No. Have you ever been to Australia, by the way? <laughs> That's where I she was, lives. Well, I used to work for Microsoft. Yeah. I used to do do some of the trade show stuff, and there was a thing called uh, the Bets Show, British Entertainment Trade something or other. And it was at the um, uh, Earl's Court... Um, 
yeah, I was caught before they knocked it down. Um, and we, we had this great thing. And, and I was doing, I was on the Microsoft stand and I was demonstrating at the time all the entertainment because it was the entertainment show, Flight Simulator. And I was, uh, no, no, it wasn't Flight Simulator. It was Encarta, this CD that they'd made called Encarta. And it was like I a database Encarta. of movies. Yeah, I remember that. Before the internet, this was <laughs> brilliant. No, I remember it. And um, so I'm, I'm stood there talking to this, this chap about Encarta and I feel this burning sensation on the back of my neck and i turned around and there was this this guy with a video camera and a hot light that was burnt, glaring into us and there was this little girl with him and she said uh oh do you think i might be on that cd and i i just looked at her and i said doubt it you've got to be famous to be on there and the guy with the camera just kind of shook his head and, and it was just like i cannot believe that uh and yeah and i didn't realize at the time that it was kylie minogue but i knew very shortly afterwards oh brilliant kev yeah. Um, well, if you're in the pit, um, you you go through a licensing process to be able to sell your your pictures and use your pictures. So that is slightly different. Yeah. Well, very very different. And if you're ever in the pit, and I've done the pit job a few times, it's really annoying how they only ever give you the first three numbers. Then you have to then you're cleared away, and you're thinking, what happens when that happens later on? And, and it's like security will just no. That's it. You've had your fifteen clicks and three songs. Away you go. Yeah. Sounds like a good job, though. I'd like to quit. Mm, what, music, music photography? And all, all those photographers that are then granted further access to, you know, when, when the security guards have moved everybody else aside, can just carry on and mm. even get on stage and go behind the drummer and stuff. That's like the best job in the world, I'm sure. Yeah. But, right. Book. Book. <laughs> Book. Here it is. Um, so this week's book of the week is The 1960s Photographed by David Hearn. Yeah. Um, highly, easily available, still on Amazon, still on Abe, um, still available everywhere. Uh, this is the published in 2015, I think. Now, of course, David was most famous for his, I guess, his 60s pictures, especially the stuff of the Beatles. Um, he did a lot of film stuff that you will have heard the um the, the really entertaining story in the in the interview about the um, James Bond pistol. But the what what I really love about this book is that it's there's an element of that in there, but there's also just your average everyday life. Um, so I'm just flipping here, page 42, Hammersmith Palais, um, one of London's best loved dance halls. The Hammersmith Palais played host to everyone from Britain's first jazz bands to punk pioneers of the late 70s. So there's the, these lovely, beautiful black and white pictures of these guys and girls in a dance, having a dance, having a ballroom dance, you know, and it's really, really interesting because he, he's saying that, you know, while the Beatles are kind of tearing it up in in, in, in other places, these these girls and boys that will have been, you know, screaming at the Beatles, then put on their best suits and their, their posh frocks and go and have this very gentle um, kind of dance together. And you've got pictures of of the girls all sat together waiting for a gentleman to come and, uh, you know, excuse me, excuse me, love, want to dance? Um, Are you asking? You know, uh, you asking, you dancing, you asking. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I love it. And it's all black and white, of course, and it's got this beautiful, rich tone to it. Um, one thing I don't like about this book, and it's a general observation about books that split pictures across pages. I'm not a big fan of you that. Don't However, like you're running across the gutter. Yeah, right across the spine. Yeah. And and but saying that, some of these pictures do deserve double page spread, so it's it's quite unavoidable. Um there's another picture, one of the ones I'm looking at now is one of Ringo Starr. Um this was during the time that he was filming uh, sorry, he was photographing for Hard Days Night. Mm. 
uh, while they were filming it. And he's Ringo Starr is sat in this carriage. Oh, he's the, in the in first class to, uh, compartment, isn't he? Yeah, he's in a first really class compartment. He's just kind of looking yeah, out through yeah, the window. Yeah. And in the window is all of these girls. They've got their, their little point-and-shoot cameras That's of the right. day. They're looking for him. Staring at yeah. this window. And one of them's got her camera and is kind of trying to get a picture. And the other one's um, playing with her hair and trying to smile. Um, and it's phenomenal. And, and what's phenomenal about this picture is uh, the exposure. I mean, it's a, a wonderful, wonderful moment. But Ringo Starr would have been in a dark cabin. Yeah. The girls outside are bright sunshine. Still gets the shot, you know. He does. Um, I suppose he's saved slightly there by the fact they're obscuring some of that natural light that's going to come through the window and sort of really make lots of stops of difference because his his face is his his face is sort of half lit. It is, but it's 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 still a wonderful it picture. Is. Oh, I mean, it shooting is. that yeah. is a difficult yeah. shot. It is, yeah, definitely, yeah. Um, especially in 1964, wherever it was. Yeah. And you know, and, and David says, you know, the only thing you need to know about being a photographer is where to stand and when to press the button. (laughs) (laughs) And, okay, so I'll flip forward a little bit, page 140, Julie Christie. Do you remember Julie Christie? Yeah, I do. And there's some beautiful pictures of her just in a, a, um, she's in a shopping queue, um, queuing up in, well, it wouldn't have been a Tesco's, but similar kind of thing. And it's great because on the the shelves behind is just loads of tins of of tins of baked beans, tins, 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 everything's in tins, no fresh food. And then there's a, a wonderful picture of her on the tube. And the ironic thing I find about this is that, you know, the supermarket is very different. Obviously, they've got those old metal baskets and stuff. Do you remember those? Yeah. Old, you know, yeah. Small things would fall through the bottom <laughs> and all the tins. And then the tube. The tube looks identical to it is now. Yeah. The front cover The front cover pictures are um, are also in detail on on, on the inside. And, and there's there's one of the Beatles running on the top, and then there's another one underneath, which I, I think is one of my favorite pictures. And I think that was from the um, Charlotte Hall mm. Ball. Mm. It's too... Uh, it's it's like a mirror image. It's mm. it's a wonderful picture. You've got two ladies and two guys. Um, they're all smoking. The women are both wearing white. The guys are wearing their their DJs, and the tables, the chairs are almost all symmetrically placed. Mm. It's literally like a mirror. Um, it's wonderful, wonderful. And it's dark and grey and really hard to expose. There's no background to it. Um, but that's that's one of my favourite pictures. Um, but yeah, I mean, we talked in the interview about kind of nostalgia again, as I always do. I always bring up nostalgia, you know yeah, me, yeah. nostalgia and boxes. Um, <laughs> and you know, it's it is that you know he 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 says about his own pictures that um, you know photography is memory making for him, and so he when he looks back at a picture, he can remember exactly what he was doing, you know, in and around that time. Um, whereas if you asked him physically, what were you doing, you know, on such and such a day in 1965, you probably wouldn't know, but you can look at the picture and, and then, you know, the mind will kind of go away from there and think, oh yeah, after that, I went to this club and did this and met that person. Um, so from a personal element of nostalgia, it's there, but you know, it's, it's brilliant. There's a, there's a handful of color pictures, uh, in the book as well. Um, more of them, the kind of fashion stuff he did, the model stuff, um, there's a sequence on Barbarella, which is a film shot in Rome. And so you've got some pictures of the actresses getting kind of prepared. And you know, there's, a, there's a guy with a cigarette in his mouth cutting with scissors the, the, the clothes around them. Do you know what? I, I think the kids of today will, um, because of smartphones and making pictures all the time and Instagram, etc., 
There, there will be. You talk about making history through your pictures that you take today. There's going to be a lot of history recorded. We often lament, and I know you do, that that street photography will be no more, and so on and so forth. But actually, there's been a generation. You might 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 almost say these are the hidden photographs, which aren't in in the same respect. That are going to have all this time recorded because they have over recorded it to such an extent in some respects. Yeah, true. Um, you know, it's different times, isn't it? And, and again, we chatted about that briefly in the in the interview. But, um, y- y- you know, I-, I asked him whether he could get away with taking the same pictures now as he did then. Um, and, it, and he actually said, I could because, uh, you know, I'm older, but I understand why it's more difficult for young people, given the circumstances that we live in these days and the... Um, the concerns over social media and sharing and, you know, you taking my picture yeah. uh, in those days. And, and Daniel said the same thing in those days to have your picture taken was seen as something special. Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't a problem. It was like, wow, that guy's taking a picture of me. That must mean I'm cool. Um, and now of course it's, it's different. Um, you know, and David, and and in the book, there's, it, it covers so much of his work in the 60s. That's a real Brilliant. eclectic mix of pictures, this, isn't it, really? Yeah, of course, because he was an eclectic photographer. You know, mm. he, he, he was uh, perhaps most well-known for his, his kind of celebrity work, but, but actually he was a photojournalist. And so this body of work is the 60s, just his 60s stuff, and it does cover everything from the, the, the fashion, the, the, yeah. the celebrity, the journalistic work, um, and everything in between. It's wonderful. I love it. It's a really beautiful book. Um, some really nice pictures of you know people who it's the behind the scenes stuff in the film sets that I like I enjoy that I met him a few years uh, back at the photography show with, uh, with my mate Giles and um, Giles was chatting to him for a while and uh, I think I, I, I got a picture of it I spied he was using an X-Pro2 yeah I think he uses an X100 mm. uh, we didn't talk about cameras at all actually no. but he, I think he uses an X100 now mm. I tell you what it's amazing that anybody from the 60s is still alive because they've every single picture they've got bloody cigarettes stuffed in their mouth I know Kev careful <laughs> uh, but that, that 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 was the times. Yeah, but in those days, cigarette smoking was good for you, wasn't it? Doctors used to prescribe it. I know, odd, isn't it? How odd? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, the book is available. You can buy. The book it. is available. The 1960s, photographed by David Hearn. That's the title. Yeah. Um, yeah, nice. It's it's a um, rap real artist pressed real art press book. Perfect. Right, and I think time for one more question, Andy. Um, do you remember Howling Bassett? We've talked about Howling Bassett before as a name of a photography company. Um, Hello, gents. Yada, yada, yada. Uh, Great. The weddings and the wider UK economy will be opening up from the 21st of June. And after 18 months of doing very little photographically, it'll be great to finally earn some money. But more important than all this, when is the next X weddings conference or a Brighton get together? He does have Mm -hmm. two questions. That first one, well, we can't answer the ex-weddings thing right now. Otherwise, we'd have to do a... Warning, warning. Um, and also, it's worth interjecting there. The ex-weddings, the ex-weddings for a lot of people won't know what ex-weddings is. Oh, so ex-weddings yeah. is another Facebook group that I set up yeah. specifically for wedding photographers who shoot with Fujifilm cameras. Mm. And we did a conference. So I did a conference. Two, two Gem- conferences. Gemma and I did two, yeah. Mm. And, uh, yeah, so so that that might give you some kind of inkling. But there won't be, there won't be an ex-weddings as such we'll <laughs> leave right. it at that we'll leave it at that well brighton get together sounds a lot yeah. of fun but i think that has to be definitely has to be when the the world has opened up a, a little bit more and people feel comfortable about all that kind of stuff 
Yeah. I think people yeah, will feel nice. comfortable, obviously, from the 21st of June, but it might be a sort of, I don't know, sometimes I think people, if we really, if we can keep doing this great job and the rest of the world join in as well and we mm-hmm. sort out all the stuff about AstraZeneca that people are worried about, well, you know, they'll, I, I wonder how forgetful people will be about, about this, this period. They'll know it happened, but we are, we are creatures that... That's all we, we will. I think we'll quickly go back into the world as it was before. I know people say we'll never be the same again. We'll be wearing masks forever. No, just don't if that's think. the case, I'm going to go and I'm going to get all my cardboard boxes out of the bin. <laughs> I'm just going to build a bunker and live in there. See, we have to wear masks forever. That's the use of you. There we go, Kev. You hit the nail <laughs> on the head. Cardboard box house. Um, second question. I called my business Howling Bassett back in 2003 because I didn't want to use my name. I also employed other photographers, uh, and you'll like this. And I had Bassett hounds who <laughs> howled for 1,100 weddings. Uh, and now that my Bassets are no more, and we have oh. a, a, a Dachshund, uh, should I should I change my should I change the name? And and do you have any suggestions? I think Howling Bassett sounds really cool. I'd keep it. Yeah, uh, it sounds far cooler than Kevin Mullins. <laughs> Who have you got photographing your wedding, Kevin Mullins? Who have you got? Who have you got, got photographing your wedding? Howling Bassett! Yes, I've heard of them. They're great. Yeah. <laughs> rock and roll. <laughs> it is rock and roll. Yeah, I don't know. I'd, I'd keep Howling Bassett. I like it. Yeah, I do too. And if your brand is established with that as well, and, yeah. and you know, it sounds like you've been shooting over a thousand weddings with it, then yeah, I, I think I would stay with it too. I wouldn't. I wouldn't change that. Yeah, stay as you are. And that's it for this week. Thank you to David Hearn, um, this week's guest, and of course, book of the week. Time to plug it again, <laughs> so quickly. Um, is is David Hearn's? What was the book called again? It's called the 1960s. Nine, oh, it's just simply the 1960s. Brilliant book. Very eclectic. If you can share the episode on Twitter or on Facebook, you are an absolute star. See you in the Facebook group for any questions you have about today's show. Play nice, of course. Our mods, Steve and Peter, are in there. Um, just a word about that, by the way. Please please be sure, if you're posting pictures, to give a little context uh, to why you popped them up. It doesn't have to be an exhaustive essay, but just a couple of thoughts to, to help. If you'd like to send your questions in, then you can do it through the Facebook group, and there's a particular post there for you, isn't it? Is this, by the way, is this the Facebook um, posts, will, will we carry on doing it that way when you're sat here just opposite me? I don't see why not. I think it's people idea, like it? it's an easy way for people to answer questions. Yeah. Um, the other thing is, don't forget the Instagram print swap. Oh yeah. Um, oh yeah. Hashtag Fujicast print swap. We've got quite a few in there now, which is good. Um, we're going to run that for a few more weeks. Um, no, no definitive end date, but just uh, we, we, you know, we will, we will on one podcast say right, that's it, the last week. When the wind, um, when the wind changes, then yeah. then it'll when stop. The wind changes. Yeah. And my the Fujicast voucher code for my presets lasts for one more week it's okay oh only one more week yeah all right okay well one okay more one more week what was the code again fujicast oh just, ages just to think of that. <laughs> oh god kev you're so inventive you're so creative <laughs> you need to get rid of your dividers as well uh, my, my email address is kevin at kevin mullins photography <laughs> click it <laughs> Click at fujicast.co.uk, though, is, is our one. Um, yep. If you'd like to send in your questions. And uh, music from Blue Wednesday, supporting music from the incredible artlist.io. We will see you next week. Bye, Kev. Bye-bye. The Fujicast is an independent Loading Zone production. Email the show with your questions and words of wisdom to click at fujicast.co.uk. Email any complaints and political nonsense to our wives who will deal with your comments in their own good time and in their own good way.